You know how amped I am to preach about water. I, I, I could live in it. Like, uh, if, if I was back in Zim, I would be in the river. Uh, I would be fishing on dams. I just, just water, sea, everything. But before I get into God above it all, especially the water, which is going to be so fun um, until the end, then it's not going to be fun. But uh, all the way through, it's going to be fun. Before I get into there, I just I can't believe he went there again. I have to correct heresy in this church. And anytime anybody supports the bulls and then tells us the Holy Spirit will comfort, I just have to tell you that the Holy Spirit will also convict. <laughs> Especially if you're a Zulu and you were born in KZN and you support the bulls. Anyway, uh, the Holy Spirit will do his work. And for those of you online, so cool to have you. And um, just so you know, online guys. Next week, we're going to trap you, because I know you like skim through the announcements, and uh, we are going to do a survey, and here's why. We are excited about the gathered church, what's happening here, but we are getting more and more amped for the scattered church, which is happening in various suburbs throughout our city. It has blown me away as I've started to realize where people are meeting. People are meeting all over our city in Westville, uh, some of them far south, like Far, far south, and then there's like clumps in Lucia and all over the show. There's just clumps of olive tree people. We want to know where you are. We want to know who you are, and we'd love to connect you. And uh, and so, please, will you fill in the survey that will be there next week? But today, God above the water. I don't know. Let me let me show you a picture of the globe. So that's the globe. You see how blue it is. It's blue because 71% of our globe is ocean. Let me show you some pictures of some videos of ocean. Just look at these. Look at that. The ocean. Look at that wave. Oh, heaven is in a wave. You know that, um, that nearly 80% of the Earth's oceans are unexplored. We actually know more about Mars and Venus than we know about our own ocean. Because, because why would you go down there? Most of it's desert. There's, there's a mountain range, the mid-oceanic mountain range. It's 65,000 kilometers long. That's a lot. And it's almost all underwater. It just pops out every now and again. There's, the ocean is filled with species. We reckon that 94% of the species in our world are in the ocean. And we're identifying new species every day. We don't even know what's in there. The ocean hasn't been mapped, it hasn't been identified of what's in it. The ocean is wild, and God just spoke it. That just blows me away. In Genesis 1, it says this, Then God said, Let there be space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And he called that sky. And then God said, Let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place so dry ground may appear. He just separates. You know, when you read about water and how God uses it right the way through Scripture, He's constantly separating with water. He separates land from water. He separates righteous from unrighteous. He separates, you'll see, He just keeps separating and creating order and design through water. I love how He speaks it into being. You know, Oceans make up 97% of our water. They give us 70% of our oxygen. The other 3% is mostly made up of glaciers and underground water. We basically live off about a percent, 1.2% of all the water that there is. And by 2040, we're going to run out. 
not a problem for some of you. I'm 40, so 43. So I've got, I've, I've got a little bit of life ahead of me, which means I should invest in water. Because it's going to be a very rare commodity. It's going to get really expensive. Water is going to matter to us. Water. It's beautiful. But this isn't a, a sermon on global warming. This is a sermon about God. And it's hard not to think about God without thinking about God and water without thinking about Noah and the flood. So I, I got a, a picture of a flood. This is in 1931 in China. Mid-China flood. Seven cyclones. Not like one or two. Seven cyclones converged. That's like angry sky. Seven cyclones converge. And there's a, a snow melt that happens in the mountains above. And this water, basically, what China, this area of China, about the size of England, would have received in 18 months, they receive in the month of July. So by August, their biggest rivers are swamps. After August, they reckon, over the next little while, somewhere between 3.1 and 3.7 million people died. Only thousands from drowning. The rest from famine and from disease. That's like Durban. Durban's 4.5. But that's like all of Durban getting wiped out by a flood. When you think about Noah, you know, God comes and he sees the wickedness of man. And God looks at this situation, he goes, I cannot tolerate this evil. But he sees Noah. Now, I know that most people, when they hear about Noah, they go like, cuckoo, Christians. I just want to throw like a couple of thoughts in there for those of you skeptics. Um, you know that in almost every culture in the world, from Japan through to Aborigines, through to ancient Aztecs, all the way to North American Red Indians, there are stories, they don't call him Noah, in Japan they call him Nua, and, and everywhere else they call him something else, but there are stories about a great flood that filled the known world, but that a family survived in a boat. In fact, just to throw like a couple of other thoughts, engineers today still design boats on the ratio that God gave to Noah to design the ark. Just like throwing it out there. But what was the purpose? It was to separate. God was separating righteousness from evil. God consistently separates through water. God created the waters. He separates through waters. He commands the waters. In Job 12, 15, it says, if he holds back the rain, the earth becomes a desert. If he releases the waters, they flood on the earth. He's the God above it all. Possibly why so many of the miracles in the Bible, they, they started water, or they, they're water miracles. In, in fact, in, in the book of Exodus, there's seven miracles in water, and they start at the river, the Nile, with a kid called Moses. It's interesting what, what happens here. Is, um, well, let me show you. There's, uh, people argue about whether the Nile or the Amazon are longer. Like, there's still a bit of a debate going on. Some say Amazon, others say Nile. The Nile is um, 6,695 kilometers long. It, it covers 11 countries. Like, that's a river. The Amazon's also quite hectic. Um, I'm going to go back. There, there's this dude. What is his name? In 2007, he swam. Martin. Show us a picture of Martin. Doesn't look like a roaring athlete. He swam the Amazon. 
It took him 66 days, 10 hours a day of swimming. You would think he'd be thinner. But anyway, this oak, I mean, he didn't watch Piranha when he was growing up, but he, he swam the entire length. He would tell you that the Amazon was, was longer. But you, you think about what happens in the rivers. So God comes to Noah, I mean, comes to Moses. And here's the scene. Pharaoh's wiping out babies left, right, and center. And, uh, and God sees, and the Bible says, this beautiful child. Now, I've had three babies. And, and so by the, by the time you get to the third, you realize babies aren't beautiful. My first two definitely weren't. My third, maybe. But, uh, but babies are, are not beautiful things. But there's something special, so special about this baby that God looks at this baby and goes, this is a beautiful child. And his parents see the same thing. They, they see that this child was beautiful. And so Moses' mom grabs hold of Moses, and she goes, I am going to do something to save this child. And she makes a basket that she covers in tar, and then she puts them into this basket. And, and you know, the, the name for the basket that she, she builds for, for Moses is the same name for the ark that Noah used, that's the same Hebrew word. She puts him into the river and she's probably praying, Lord, you've done this once before with Noah, will you do it again? And she releases this little boy and he drifts down the river, steered by the invisible hand of God into a princess's space that she's bathing. And she takes this child and she says to her Egyptians, her Israelite slave, go and find me an Israelite woman. So the woman goes and finds the mom and the mom gets her baby back and she weans him. And then Moses lives in a palace. But 40 years later, he gets kicked out of Egypt and then he, he comes back because God sends him back to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And when he comes back, he gets brought back to the Nile. You know, the thing you'll find in rivers is that when God's going to do something new, he often does it in a river. When, he, when Israel goes from the wilderness, they go through the Jordan River to start again. When, when Elijah goes to Elisha, it's at a river that there's a crossing. When Jesus is going to start his ministry, he goes and he's baptized into a river. Again and again, God uses rivers to start something new. But, but in this story, he comes to the river. And, and this is what happens. It says in Exodus 4.9, God says, after two miracles, he says, and if they still don't believe you or listen to you, even after these two signs, then take some water from the Nile and pour it out on dry ground. When you do, the water from the Nile will turn to blood on the ground. Let me show you a blood-looking river. That's, that's created by the soil. In fact, there's a, there's a river in Colombia. It's called the River of Five Colors. Let me show you a picture of it. It literally has five colors. Next river. There we go. It, it has five colors, but that, not just a one spot. They're actually like chunks of, of the river that are either green or red or black or yellow or blue because of the sand color. This is incredible. The river right now with Exodus is, is blood. In fact, they can't drink from it, so they start digging holes next to the Nile so that they can get some water out. But Pharaoh's not impressed. So he keeps enslaving the Israelites. And so God sends 
Moses and his brother Aaron back. And Aaron comes and it says, So Aaron raised his hand over the waters of Egypt and frogs came out and covered the land. Pharaoh still refuses to repent. And so God does 10 miracles and then he kind of draws a line in the water, in the sand. And he says, I'm going to separate my people in a way that they can't be unseparated. And so they get to the Red Sea. Now, I want to show you a big wave. Let me show you a big wave. Big wave's coming. Look at that. There's the surfer. Some things I would not do. I would cut surf that, but I would not surf it. That's the surfer. He's like a little speck on a 30-meter face. That's scary. Eh? Just, just imagine going down there. The Red Sea, so that's 30 meters, call it 100 feet. The Red Sea is 500 feet. And God separates the Red Sea. He opens it up. And you are looking not at that, but at five times that on either side. Which is why I think God had to get Pharaoh's army to come up behind them because, to get them to start walking through. Because imagine how much faith you needed to walk between two waves that size that weren't breaking. They get through to the other side and the wave collapses. And you can still find wheels of chariots in the middle of the Red Sea today. These stories that we kind of treat as kindergarten stories, there's, there's reality to them. Then there's, a, there's another miracle. You see, God splits oceans. He transforms rivers. He uses clouds, the Bible says, to cover his people and, and to direct them in the wilderness. But perhaps the most incredible miracle is Moses gets the people to a space and they have no water. And then God says to Moses, he says, I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai. Strike the rock and water will come gush gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told and water gushed out as the elders looked on. We, we have that statement for like a really tough crowd. We say it's like getting blood out of a stone. Well, this is water out of a rock. And it's not, Moses hit it at this angle so that it can move slightly. There's a crack in there. There's an aquifer underneath that's going to pop up. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is it is a rock and water's going to come right out of it. The Hebrew is rock, water out. That's what it means. It, it's literally God making a creative miracle and he's taking some carbon, turned it into hydrogen and oxygen and mixes the whole thing out and water comes out that feeds a million five hundred thousand people. It is a lot of water. God is above it all. He is stronger than it all. He can use it all. He is just, he's extraordinary. In fact, I was trying to work out how I could describe God to you, and I thought the only way I can do it is steal someone else's sermon. There's a guy by the name of S.M. Lockridge. He wrote probably the most brilliant sermon that's ever been preached, and he, he writes this. He says, he's indescribable, indescribable, he's incomprehensible, he's invincible, he's irresistible, he's endurably strong, he's entirely sincere, he's eternally steadfast, he's immortally graceful, he's imperially powerful, he's impartially merciful, he's the centerpiece of civilization, he stands alone in himself, unique, 
unparalleled, unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. The heavens cannot contain him. Man cannot explain him. You can't outlive him. You can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found that they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him, and Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. It is just beautiful. That's my king. Oh, he's above it all. And so I, I went through these and I thought about how God had used hail to kill the enemies of, of Joshua. Or how Jesus had spoken to a storm that looked like it was going to drown the disciples and it had stilled. Or I thought about one of my favorite stories that says that Jesus saw them at the third hour and uh, he saw the disciples they were paddling against the storm. Nothing was happening. And then the, the verse says, And Jesus came to them walking on water and was about to walk past. How's it? <laughs> Jesus came walking on water. He, he can do whatever he wants with water. Create it. Shape it. He can walk on it. He can do anything he wants with water. But that wasn't the miracle I want to speak about. What the miracle I want to speak about is in so many ways more profound. Because it's not about God rescuing a nation, and it's not about God demonstrating his power, although this is powerful. It's, it's not about God ending injustice. It's about God turning water into wine. And so I want to read from this text in John 2, and you've got to understand this about John. He's different in his writing to the other Gospels. John writes later on in his life, and so he's got a picture of what everyone else says. And he writes something different. You see, everybody else, what they were doing is they were writing a lot of them to Jews. And what they were trying to do is prove that Jesus was the Messiah. So they start with like the lineage. So you read all those names and you get really bored. And then you skip to chapter 2 and all the first three Gospels. Because they're trying to build an argument, a case for Jesus being the Messiah. John doesn't start with, um, let me prove to you that Jesus is the Messiah. John starts with, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. And the Word was with God. In fact... Everything that was created was created through him, and nothing was created that wasn't created through him. Everything about what John's saying is, Jesus is God, full stop. Now let me show you how that works. This is important. Because in chapter 1, he goes, Jesus is God. And in chapter 2, he says, let me show you a wedding. Not let me show you Lazarus being raised from the dead. Not let me go to the crucifixion. Not let me show you the empty tomb. Let me talk to you about a wedding. Because John knows that the whole Bible starts at a wedding. The whole Bible will end at a wedding. So he takes a wedding as a prophetic image of what will happen. And he gives us a story of a miracle. Now, friends, whenever you read a miracle that Jesus performs in the Bible, there's the miracle, but then there's a deeper meaning. There's the Causing them to be able to hear, opening the ears of the deaf. But then there's God's illustration of the fact that nobody seems to be able to hear what he's actually saying. There's the healing of the blind, but what he's actually saying is, you're blind, and let me show you how to see. You see, there's always another meaning to every miracle that Jesus does, and there's a meaning to this miracle. 
But it says this in John 2. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supplier ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Jesus says, Jesus loving, compassionate, caring, this is what he says, dear woman, not our problem. Your monkey is your circus, not my problem. That's what Jesus says. And then he says this, my time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. I, I love this. You know how moms can come at the wrong time and say the wrong thing and you'll still do it? They just, they have that anointing. They can come to you, wrong time, awkward, wrong situation, orkies, I'll still do it. That's Jesus' mom. She's pulling rank here. Jesus says something profound. He says, it's not my time, which means that he had a time. He had a schedule. He had a plan. And, and if he says, it's, it's not my time, then you've got to go, well, what was his time? Now, let me, let me just help you see something. Jesus has, until ministry starts, to kind of jaw. I mean, he can enjoy himself, not too much pressure. No one's going to kill him tomorrow, unlikely, maybe some Romans. But, like, he's, he's having life. And he knows the day ministry starts, he's on the way to a cross. And when he says to his mom, not my time, what he's saying is, I can just be. I can just enjoy. I can just live. And I would submit to you that if his mom understood what he was saying, his mom would not ask him to perform that miracle. But she doesn't know. And so she does what true faith does. She goes, hey, servants, it's going to get weird in here. I don't know how he's going to do this, but I'm out of here. Jesus got this one. Oh, I love this. You know you have faith. When you can pray, get up and go, well, that problem's solved. That's faith. The only way you get that faith is that you know Jesus well enough that you know how he's going to respond. Mary knows Jesus well enough to go, there's no wine. Servants do what he says. I heard him too. Bye. Oh, it's beautiful. But it carries on. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of the ceremony. So the servant followed his instructions. When the master of the ceremonies tasted the water, there was now wine. Not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone's boozed, I'm no, sorry, when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. The wedding with no wine. See, um, you read this, and you got the problem is no wine. Now, when, when the Bible talks about wine, 
almost every time, it's not talking just about bottle stores are closed on Saturdays. There was rugby, I forgot. It's not just talking about what comes out of a grape. It's almost always talking about what comes out of a grape and what comes flowing from within. It's always got two meanings. You see, in, in Jewish days, when you had a wedding, it wasn't like 2 o'clock till 2 a.m. When you had a wedding in Jewish days, it was days. You wanted to run out of people, then run out of wine. In fact, there were some places where if you ran out of wine before you ran out of people, you could be arrested. That's how hectic it was. It was an utter humiliation and embarrassment if you ran out of wine. I just want to ask, have you run out of wine? You see, see, they've got the celebration, they've got the bridal couple, and they've got the people, and they've got... They've got Everything you need to make life thrilling and exuberant and exciting and beautiful and joyful and peaceable and loving. They've got everything they need, but they've run out of wine. Has COVID stolen your wine in your marriage, in your job, in your friendships, in your life? Are you wineless? You see... Here's why this is so important. I have realized that with the little bit of wine I've got, I, can have, I am having more conversations with non-Christians about Jesus than I have ever had. It has never been so easy because they have no wine. They're in pain. And they are desperate for wine. But I have never seen the church so wineless. We've lost our wine. Something went wrong, and I want to teach you about how to get your wine back. So if you've been sleeping up until now, because I'm talking about water, I'm getting into wine. I'm talking about the stuff that you need for the world to know Jesus. I'm talk about how to get your wine back. There's a there's something beautiful in this. That, so that. Those six stone jars, they would have weighed about, about 75 kgs. They would have carried about 100 liters. So a bath, uh, like a fillish bath, is about 80 liters. It's a lot of water. When you shower, 75 liters. Just remember, 20, 40, no more water, just bath, shower. shower. Okay? So, so these stone jars, 100 liters. You are not going to take the stone jar, 75 kgs, down to the water, fill it with 100 liters, and walk back with 175 kgs. You're going to the water and bringing it to the jar, which means you're using something smaller, which means you're doing trip after trip after trip after trip, which is why Mary's intuition is so on it when she says, do whatever he tells you, because when he starts telling you to fill these cups, these things with water, and you know that you need wine, and it's going to take that many walks backwards and forth, you're going, not a chance. So Jesus preempts it. I just want to ask you a question. I don't know if it's the same for you as it is for me, but you ever find you ask Jesus for wine, and he tells you to go and get water? You ask him for a wife, and he tells you to start a life group? You ask him for money, he tells you to serve at kids' church. You ask him for your joy back, he tells you to go and preach the gospel to someone. I, I find, 
as I've looked through my prayer lists, that almost always I will ask God for this and he'll tell me to do that. Go in, fill it up and pour it out and fill it up and pour it out. You see, the thing about Christianity is it's just a filling up and pouring out. It's just serving. It's just, the, the thing about Christianity is it's just a long life of obedience, all in the same direction. That's what Christianity is. And here's the thing that doesn't make any sense, is whilst you're filling it up and pouring it out, somewhere down the line, we don't know where, we don't know if it was as they were pouring it in, it became wine, or we don't know if it was as the servant put the thing in to take the wine to the, the other dude that it became wine. And we don't know if it was maybe when he poured it into the cup that it became wine, or maybe when the guy picked it up and put it on his lips it became wine. We hardly ever know when the serving and serving and sacrificing and doing what God said, even though it doesn't make any sense, we hardly ever know when that will produce wine. But one day you wake up and you go, what just happened? I am full of joy. I've been tithing and I've been tithing and I've been tithing. Nothing, nothing. What? How did that happen? Wine. I've been speaking to my blooming children about Jesus and speaking, speaking, speaking. And then my teacher tells me that he's in trouble because he's been preaching to his Hindu mate. When did that happen? Wine. Good thing. Keep getting into trouble. Wine. We don't know when it's going to happen, but it's just a life continued obedience that produces wine. But now let me get a little bit deeper. Those purification jars, they were there to wash you. And they were 100 liters because they weren't there to sprinkle you. They were there to baptize you. So let me help you understand. Next to the temple, they, were, they had rocks, and they would dig big cisterns into the rocks because what you needed to do was you needed a sacrifice, the punishment of sin, and you need a washing, the defilement of sin. Both had to be dealt with. Sacrifice for punishment, washing for defilement. You needed both sorted. So when Peter gets up to address the crowd, he sees Next to the temple, he sees these big holes in the ground filled with water, and he goes, let's deal with their defilement in the true sense coming to Jesus. Let's baptize you right now. Let's do what John the Baptist has been doing. Let's make a public declaration of your faith right now and right here. Jesus takes an instrument that's used for repentance to pour new wine into. Now, I want to just talk about this instrument used for repentance for a moment. See, I have realized that God's above it all. And he could literally take the molecules in your body and transform them so that joy exploded in your brain despite you. He... He's God above it all. He could do whatever he wants. He could make you, if you are the glummest person on, uh, on the planet, you're like just naturally skeptical. You, if you're like the worst person to be around, he could literally just touch your brain. He could speak of your brain and suddenly you're the happiest person in the world. But he doesn't. He doesn't move past his principles. And there's a principle here. 
there's a principle that if you're going to get new wine, the joy and power of the Holy Spirit, it's going to come on the back of repentance. Now, we don't preach about this much because as a preacher personally, I hate seeing sorrowful, mournful people who just, they think that the quality of their forgiveness, they think that they'll only get forgiven based on the quality of their repentance. Like, only if I'm sad enough and beat myself up enough will, will he forgive me. And we know that's not true because by one sacrifice, he has purified all those who are being made holy. So we know that forgiveness is not related to how well you repent. But here's what I also know. That wine, the, the Holy Spirit's work in your life, is completely related to how you repent. Let me, let me prove it to you. It says in 2 Corinthians, it says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. It's not talking about leading to going to heaven. It's talking about leading to eternal life coming into you. And it says, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world, which is, Don, I did it again. Let me get guilty about that so that I can change. That sorrow, it leads to death. In fact, when Peter's preaching, he says, now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come out from the presence of God. You want wine in your life? You need to empty out so that he can fill you up. You need to empty out the greed and the selfishness and the life's all about me and the being led by the flesh, and the lust. And the, you need to repent. Because the Holy Spirit will always fill what believes in the truth. You want to become empty so that he can make you full. And that happens not by you getting your life right. Most people stop repenting because they repented, 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 nothing happened. Here's, here's how God fills you. When you repent, going, God, I'm so sorry. I did that, and it literally pierced my wife's heart. I'm so sorry. I've, I've hurt my relationship with you. I'm so sorry. That's not who you called me to be. That's not who I am. And thank you, Lord, that you forgive me. Now give me new wine so I can change because I can't change by myself. See, this is faith. It's repentance to faith. It's, and it'll always lead in joy. It'll, it'll end in joy. If you get cut to the heart for the sin you've committed and you think about it and you let it really work inside of you and you think about what God actually wants for you, if you repent deeply, you will find joy follows. My little boy... The other day, for the first time, he repented without me telling him to repent. He came to me and he just said, Dad, I am so sorry for being rude. I, I shouldn't have done that, Dad. I'm sorry. And he comes up to me and he gives me a hug. This is repentance. You know what I did? Little brat, what on earth? No, of course not. I grabbed hold of him and hugged him and joy was felt. Church, joy follows repentance. Fullness follows emptiness. The Holy Spirit comes where truth is believed. For many of us, he can't fill us with new wine because we're so full with everything else. 
from entertainment to sin to greed to selfishness. We, we're so filled with how am I feeling and how am I going to respond? What am I going to fill my life with? We're so filled with everything but our deep, deep desire for God. And that happens through repentance. And so I'm going to do an unolive tree thing. I'm going to call us to repent. Now, if there's no joy at the end, you haven't done it properly. Because the Father's coming after you. I remember one, one day I'd, I'd duffed it. And as a pastor, you know, it's like it's worse. Like we teach you how to live. If you duff it, like, ugh. I duffed it properly. And I was, went out surfing. You know how God can actually speak to you through secular songs? He, he can even use those. And I was cut to the heart. I truly repented. You know when you're just like, oh, man, Lord, I'm so, so sorry. And I think I'd gone on saying sorry a little too long. Because God gives me this song. And the words go, go now, you are forgiven. Go now, you are forgiven. Go now, you are forgiven. There is a repentance that gets you to the point where God says, enough. I got you. Now let me fill you. And you might experience that in this moment, but it might take all day and it might take all week. It will be worth every minute. We're called to live a life of repentance. Yes, it's changing how we think, but yes, it's also godly sorrow that transforms. So we're going to play a song now. We played it two weeks ago when we preached on fire. So don't worry, the water's not going to put out the fire. But we're going to let the song speak to us. And here's what I'm encouraging you to do. If, if, if there's something that is just, you know, it's just God's going this way and you're going that way, repent. And let him fill you with new wine. And so I'm going to invite people to get on your knees. Line your face. If you're at home, send them out, whoever them is. Tell them, out with you. I'm going to repent now. Take, take this moment and let the conviction of the Holy Spirit, let it work deep inside of you so that you can change, so that you can be filled. So we're going to play this song and I am literally believing for the Holy Spirit to flood people's lives here and throughout this week. However you want to respond, if you want to go on your knees, you're welcome. But we'll play the song. Altars where you need us. Take me there, take me there. If what you need is just an offering, it's right here, and my life is here, and I'll be your living sacrifice for you. 
you go. Um, here's, a, here's a cutting of our hearts that's needed. 
in this season. Maybe more than ever before, we've, we've been so insulated. And we've, in our insulation, our dysfunctions come up. And if, if you're cut to the heart and you repent, God will come. He'll come by his spirit, new wine will come. But if you want full healing, the scripture says, confess your sins one to another and you'll be healed. There's an another. If, you, if something has grabbed hold of you and you feel like it has more power over you than you have over it, you need another. Now, I know these are old school things, but you need this. You need God to bring new wine where there's a celebration and there's a marriage and there's a job and there's friends, but you've run out of wine. You need new wine. And if you'll, if you'll repent and you'll confess, new wine will be your life and the world needs it so bad. So may God take you this week and may you have a week of repenting and being filled with joy and repenting and be filled with joy. May you experience the grace and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ that surpasses all your understanding and may you have life. God bless you. God bless you online. Have a fantastic week.